Hey everyone, just before we get started here, I just want to say that uh, there's some transphobia and um, we make some like, un, like, I don't know, oblique references to a racial slur against Native Americans. So, and it's not our fault, it's Dan Brown. Dan Brown's awful. So just keep that in mind before you start listening. Thanks. All right, we're in. I got my little Turkish coffee here. I got my little lost, it's not a little lost symbol. In fact, it's a huge fucking book. Um, and I'm ready to party. It's summertime, baby. It's, it's Hey gang, welcome to the Dan Brown Code. We are back on our bullshit and we are going to start the lost symbol. I'm Forrest. I'm Lena and I am so pumped to be reading this book. We got our buddy Bobby Langdon back. No more of this. Uh, I've already forgotten their names from Digital Fortress. Let's Susan never speak of Fletcher, them again. Uh, David Becker. Snooze and Fletcher. Uh, who? What? What'd you say? I said it's more like snooze in Fetcher. <laughs> oh, that's pretty Fletcher. good. Pretty good. Okay, uh, let's get into it with some facts. Oh, I do want to note, though, that he hasn't... There's an editor here. His name is Jason Kaufman. Was was there an editor for Da Vinci Code? Do you remember? I mean, one assumes, but I didn't clock his name. Well, Angels and Demons was self-published, right? Maybe. I mean, it, it definitely got picked up by Doubleday or something. Okay. Uh, this one felt like there was an editor. And that's the first time that this has happened in reading this book, hmm. where I felt like a person whose job it is to read books read this book and gave and feedback. Yeah, not enough changes, mind you. No, not, not at all. <laughs> it was also 2009 uh, before trans people existed, as we will soon find out. Yes, 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 yes. Um, there's also a couple things before we get to facts, actually. Okay, let's go. Um, so first of all, well, first of all, some, some acknowledgement, uh, Jesus Christ, acknowledgements where he does mention the editor. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, um, speaking of Marianne Williamson, as we were before we began recording, <laughs> uh, from we get a little epigram from The Secret Teachings of All Ages. To live in the world without becoming aware of the meaning of the world is like wandering about in a great library without touching the books. Do I not have this? Oh, shit. I totally do, and I did not read it. Oh, <laughs> how will you understand this novel about like, that? This doesn't seem important wisdom. anyway. To live and then in we the get world to facts. Without becoming aware. I mean, okay. I'll take yeah, that. Yeah, it's not that profound, I don't think. I think it just looks like it might be profound. All right, let's get into some fucking facts. That's why I'm here. That's let's why I read Dan Brown, is for the facts. So let's get into it. Are you going to get into it? No, you are, because you're the oh, one who okay. actually corroborates the facts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so fact. And he does hedge his facts a lot more than usual here. Uh, first fact, in 1991, the year of my birth, a document was locked in the safe of the director of the CIA. You're old, Forrest. What the fuck? I know. Jesus. Uh, that <laughs> sounds right. I believe that. I believe a document was locked in the box of the director of the CIA. Uh, the document is still there today. Its cryptic texts includes references to an ancient portal and an unknown location underground. 
The document also contains the phrase, it's buried out there somewhere. Uh, I can neither corroborate nor not corroborate this fact. Uh, I simply didn't look it up. I mean, it's so hard to assert this fact because it's, it's like a, a document, like, sure. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the next fact, all organizations in this novel exist, including the Freemasons, the Invisible College, the Office of Security, the SMSC, which is Smithsonian Museum Support Center, and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I can actually co-sign on um, having firsthand knowledge of that last of those, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Mm-hmm. A few weeks ago, I was at my grandma's house, and she gave me a bunch of old magazines and books and shit that she didn't want but didn't want to throw away so basically i get to throw them away uh and two of them were issues from the early 2000s of the journal published by the institute of noetic sciences i have so many questions about your grandmother i'm i'm furious at myself because uh i was like i'm not gonna read these and recycled them and then like two weeks later i opened this book i'm like damn it you don't have them anymore (laughs) no no (laughs) forest i like i i I went through the table of contents and like there's nothing interesting in there it it seemed like just a less good scientific american like it didn't seem like crazy yaya shit but it didn't seem like good or interesting either i mean i'm sure you can get back issues of institutional journals like that's part of why they have journals i just i don't know i i've met your grandmother once i think at this at the the thing and um i don't know anything about this woman i don't know her astrological sign i don't know (laughs) where she's from or where she's going or what her interests are or what kind of foods she likes to eat and everything I hear about her is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes like I, I often feel very connected to her cause she goes on these, the same kind of things that I do where like for a week she'll be like very obsessed with something and then you won't really hear about it again until like two years later. And then she acts like she just found out about this new thing that she was obsessed with two years ago. <laughs> and I don't know that very much. So like the last couple of months has been the uh, Russian baritone Dmitry Vorostovsky, or she calls him the silver haired Siberian. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> Did she make up he's that He's really name? good, man. I, to the best of my knowledge, Yes. <laughs> Uh, he died. He died suddenly at like the age of fifty something. But he was a good opera singer, man. Your your grandmother uh, is. I mean, I, you can trace the um, the esoteric bullshit gene from yeah, your grandmother to you. It's been that and L. Frank Grimes, who or not L. Frank Grimes, it's L. Frank Baum, but Frank Grimes, who I think was has some kind of family connection, but also started an organization called the Independent Alliance of Greengrocers or something. And I don't know why she finds him so interesting, but she is convinced he was a great man and that uh, <laughs> someone, maybe her, should undertake the task of writing his biography. I think she should do it. She wound up like on the phone talking to the current head of the International Alliance of Greengrocers <laughs> or Independent Alliance of Greengrocers. Oh, this is your grandma who just like calls people, right? Calls like, people. If she's Loves curious, she'll just call people. Exactly. I mean, you can. And I think that's really overlooked. The fact that you can just I mean, call people. In the last masterclass, Dan Brown told us to. If you want to know about basket weaving, call a basket <laughs> weaver, man. 
Shit, I forgot to watch a master class for this one. That's okay. Um, so disorganized. Your grandmother, I had another question about her. Hold on. Oh, does your does your brother have the esoteric bullshit gene or no? Not as much. Okay. Uh, do, do, to, does to your some degree, parent? but like whichever uh, one is between you that, and your grandmother, I don't know. It's my father. Uh I don't think so to the same extent. Like he I think he's more interested in just like specifically math and science and computer shit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not, sh- I'm not sure to what extent he rabbit holes down to these things. I see. Okay. Let's move on. I'm so sorry. I'm just yeah. so fascinated <laughs> by your grandmother. <laughs> there, there is one final fact. All, uh, and this one is the one where he doesn't hedge at all. <laughs> all rituals, science, artwork, and mon. Well, he does hedge. Sorry. All rituals, science, artwork, and monuments in this novel are real. Doesn't say what he says about them is real. Just that the rituals, science, artwork, and monuments are real. I mean, he did this in Da Vinci Code, right? Where he said, like, all buildings are accurate. And I'm like... Well, all his buildings are accurate. So, like, you know, if this is just they exist, he's not saying, if I tell you there's a secret passageway under the Washington Monument that leads straight to hell. (laughs) Like, the, the Washington Monument is a real building. It probably doesn't have a passageway to hell underneath it that we know of, but... uh you know, he'd be able to cl- claim that in this novel and not technically be lying in that fact description. I like all rituals are real because it doesn't like really specify anything. Like, sure, you could do this ritual for sure. Like, but yeah, I wrote the, I wrote the Wikipedia article for this. It's real. I just <laughs> I did it one time. Let's get into this prologue, Forrest. Yep. And here is where your your uh, your timeline starts. Exactly, but this it's a bit confusing because it gives you a specific time, 8.33 p.m., but we find out later on that this takes place about three weeks before the main action of the novel. That's right. So in this prologue, uh, our point-of-view character, who we don't know, but I promise he's a very sexy villain as usual, um, is going through a... He's 34, and he's going through uh, a, a Masonic ritual. And he's reflecting on the time that he was initiated into the Freemasons. Yeah, I, I was confused because he's reflecting on his earlier initiation while also simultaneously going through a higher level initiation. He's going through the highest level in this initiation, right? He was like this final stage of yeah, my... Yeah, he's becoming a 33rd degree Mason. Mm-hmm. He's becoming... Yes. It's all very exciting. I mean, this is the kind of... Dan Brown shit that I like to see. I want to see robes. I want to see wine and skulls. I want to see mystical bonds. I want to see famous men like who are in like a secret society. Like this is the Dan Brown shit that I signed up for. We're peak Dan Brown today. I'm very excited. Yeah, the skull is hollow like a bowl. It's just a fun simile that I thought it was stupid. <laughs> I um, do want to ask. Um, I don't. I'm not really familiar with the physiology of the skull, um, but can you hold liquid in a cranial uh, cavity? My supposition here is that perhaps the top kind of dome of the skull has been cut off here, and then some kind of bowl that can contain liquid has been placed within it. Because I don't think that just as is, the skull could be used as any kind of bowl or drinking container unless you were to have it upside down. And even then, it would be cumbersome to drink out of and not like a bowl because, you know, all the 
facial elements are in the way. So I think you have to just basically put a bowl inside the hollow of the skull. Or like plug up whatever holes with wax or something to make it into a bowl. Right. But even then, like you like you'd have to hold it upside down to use it as a bowl and then it's not like cool drinking out of a skull stuff. Then it's just kind of like this weird Oh no, what I'm doing. saying is what I'm saying is if you cut off <laughs> Hey listener, okay, so what I'm saying <laughs> is if you cut off the top of a skull. Oh no, my, my headphones are powering down. This is terrible. Oh no. Do you have <laughs> other headphones? Uh presumably, but I don't know where they are. Um if you cut I off the I do have a human skull upstairs. Like a real one, Forrest? Like a real one. Like a real one. <laughs> if you cut off the top of a skull and then you like filled the inside with wax to make a bowl, which is basically what you're saying. If you put a bowl inside a skull, then it's a, a skull yeah. bowl. Okay. All right, okay. let's keep going. Now, 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 that, now that we're done with the second paragraph. <laughs> Sorry. So yes, they're in this big room, uh, just blocks from the White House, even though the room they're in looks like a holy sanctuary from the ancient world, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's modeled after the mausoleum, which is the temple, or as some would say, tomb of King Mausolus, which is true. That's where we get the word mausoleum from, which I didn't realize until fairly recently. Is that true? Okay, I was waiting for you to figure that out. I didn't actually look up the address where they're at. They're at 1733 16th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. Do you know what that is? Is it like the Masonic Hall or something? Oh, you're asking me? I have no idea. Uh, It's got a 33 and a 17 in it, so I would assume. Yes. Washington, D.C. House of the Temple. Yeah, it's a Masonic temple in D.C. It does look like the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, to be fair. That's pretty lit. I'm excited that exists. So he's in this big room. He's being uh, elevated to the next level of of the Masons. The supreme worshipful master is a man in his late 50s. He's an American icon, well-loved, robust, incalculably wealthy. His once dark hair was turning silver, and his famous visage reflected a lifetime of power and vigorous intellect. Is it Ronald Reagan? If only. Ronald Reagan is older than his late 50s by 2009 when this novel takes place. I think he's dead by then, right? Oh, for sure. He's dead, right? Yeah, he's dead. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Um, Jimmy Carter is the last, like, president that we care about who's alive. I don't have a lot to say about this chapter. Basically, you know, uh, we learned that when this guy getting elevated to the next level was initiated he was told that if he had like ill intent or whatever they're gonna kill him which Mm -hmm. is probably just like dumb mason shit and not real but he's like ha Mm -hmm. ha ha little they know i do have ulterior motives and Um, uh so he drinks i wanted to know what a hoodwink was isn't it just tricking them no 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 see um page four i have the hardcover edition i don't know what you have Ooh, we got different ones. This is exciting. Oh Jesus! Okay, well, I've got a um, I've got a mass market paperback. Okay, so, um, it says on that night in a ritual similar to this one, the worshipful master Ronald Reagan, uh, had blindfolded him with a velvet hoodwink, and pressed a ceremonial dagger to his bare chest, demanding, "Do you seriously declare?" Yada yada yada. Okay, is it just? Do you think it's just like a hood? It's a blindfold. I mean. Or he's blindfolded with oh, a hoodwink. Yeah, it's, it's 
Ar- archaic. It's an archaic word for blindfold. <sighs> cool. I hate you, Dan cool, Brown. Cool, 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 cool. I'm glad, <laughs> glad we did this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is it? Um, <laughs> um, what the important thing to know here is that our point of view character is he's a liar. He has ulterior motive. He's now like highest level Mason and he's definitely sexy. Um, cause we talk about his muscular frame and whatnot. Um, there's also an incredible, uh, fake out that Dan Brown pulls on us. Oh God, go for it. So, uh, to seal his ascension to the next level, he has to drink the wine out of the skull. He has to drink the sarcophagus juice and he has to say <laughs> the words, may this wine I now drink become a deadly poison to me. Should I ever knowingly or willfully violate my oath? And then he, you know, drinks the, drinks the wine. And then for an instant, he thought he felt his lungs growing tight and his heart began to pound wildly. My God, they know. Then as quickly as it came, the feeling passed. (laughs) Woo. Just in case you didn't have your thrills all prepared in the prologue, Dan Brown's got you covered. He could have at least waited to reveal that he didn't die in the next page, right? Because that's what he usually does. I think so. (laughs) Instead, the next page, the beginning of chapter one, we start in one of the most horrendous possible places, an <laughs> Otis elevator. <laughs> We're... Tyson Krupper bust. <laughs> it's a better kind of elevator. Are you Dan Brown? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I just I just know the two elevator brands. I think there's probably more than two. There's two like honestly, Forrest. Honestly, Forrest. There, but for the grace of God, go you. Like. <laughs> Um, you are so close to being this kind of insufferable asshole (laughs) um so we start chapter one we're in an otis elevator climbing the south pillar of the eiffel tower uh and what i think it's a flashback he's in a dream and he's a it's a baby robert langdon and he's claustrophobic in the elevator. And his dad is like, don't be so fucking claustrophobic. And he's like, I can't help it, dad. I'm a baby. And then immediately the cable snaps and they plunge to their death. Um, but it's a dream. And Robert Langdon wakes up out of it. And he's in another private jet. Uh, he's in a Falcon 2000 EX corporate jet uh, with its dual Pratt and Whitney engines humming evenly. I want to know who he learned this literary device from. Who told them that? Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy. <laughs> Tom Clancy. <laughs> I don't like it. Okay. No, it sucks. So he's on final approach. He's in a plane, as as we just discussed with the Falcon 2000, etc. Um, he has he's preparing to land in Washington D.C. at the request of his dear friend and longtime mentor Peter Solomon. Quote: The other man I never want to disappoint. Unquote. You know how you tell when you don't show. In a book, mm-hmm. you don't. You know how you well, go so, from like a father figure dream to talking about a father figure, and then you explicitly state that you don't want to disappoint this man, even though like the link is clear. Whatever. Well, it's okay. Dan Brown then gives us a chance to be very clever. So, as you may recall, the worshipful master of the Mason ceremony was a man in his late fifties uh, who was a American icon. Mm-hmm. And here we learn about Peter Solomon, Dan Brown's other dad, who's a 58-year-old hmm, philanthropist, historian, and scientist who has an influential family dynasty and massive wealth. Do we think these might be the same person? 
You know, only time will tell. I mean, I'm not going to purport to know anything about what's going on in Dan Brown's masterful mind. You know, that would be very arrogant of me. I'm just going to tell you, I felt really clever when I figured it out. Uh. <laughs> I would like to ask a question because he compares the, the, the Solomon family to the Rothschild family. Um, are the Solomons Jewish? Are they Ashkenazi? Or what's, sorry, what's the Spanish Jewish I think that's Grace? Ashkenazi, but uh, I think I think he mentions at some point that the Solomons might be Greek. Well, he says that they're Mediterranean, uh, so they could be Sephardic Jews. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's the Spanish one, actually. I think Ashkenazi might be Russian. That's the Russian one, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would make Solomon... Well, I don't know if Solomon's actually a, a actual Jewish name, but... I mean, I don't you know, know. He's a Jewish Jewish king, to be sure. Uh, Shlomo in the original Hebrew, which is a cooler name. Uh, my mom wanted to name my brother Shlomo. Um, it's a cool name, man. My dad would not allow it because it doesn't exist in Tunisia <laughs> as a name. So, does like Suleiman or is Suleiman Sule- is a Turkish version of the name or is it Arabic? Um, it's both. Okay. Um, yeah, we have Suleimans here, so we could have done that, but Shlomo is what my mom wanted. Anyway, yeah, I've, I've never run across anyone actually named Shlomo. I just in in one of my uh, Old Testament translations that I have, the author or the translator uses all the as original to a Hebrew transliteration as he can for the name. So it's that's so good. Shlomo and Shemuel instead of Samuel. It's pretty good. Oh, that's awesome. That rules. I like that. Um, okay, so Dan Brown or Robert Langdon, a person who's very different from Dan Brown, uh, <laughs> is landing in Washington D.C. <laughs> And he says Langdon loved this city, which I think is some sicko shit. <laughs> you don't like DC? I fucking hate it. I've only been there once, but oh, it seems awful. I really like it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the novel for you. Um, how many rich, old money mentors does Robert Langdon have? I mean, as many, I think I think he's going to have as many rich old money mentors as we're going to have Robert Langdon books. With the exception of Origin, where he has a young new money mentor. That's or true. he's a mentee, I guess. Yeah, Robert Langdon is daddy now. <laughs> I hate you. Okay. Uh, so he lands and he meets Pam who I don't know if she's going to come back later, but we get like a lot about Pam for some reason, who's just from passenger services. Yeah. She's, uh, she's and she, British, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she leads him to the taxi cab, but not until she's like given us the whole rundown on who Robert Langdon is and what he looks like. So she's like, Oh, you're Robert Langdon. Uh, I'm not going to do an accent. Uh, I recognized you from your books. You're wearing your uniform. And he's like, what? Uh, which is his charcoal turtleneck, Harris tweed jacket, khakis, and collegiate Cordovan loafers. <laughs> Gross. Uh, and so we learn in the next paragraph that Langdon hasn't worn neckties since his days at the Phillips Exeter Academy. Did we know that Langdon went there? I know we know that I know we know that Dan Brown for real went there, but I don't think we knew that Robert Langdon also went to the same 
like high school as Dan Brown. Yo, okay. So what I know to be true is that uh, when we watched the film, Robert, there was an Exeter banner in Robert Langdon's office, yes. right? And I think mm-hmm. we did know that he went there. Okay. I think we did know. I thought that was just... I- I thought that was just a Dan Brown Easter egg. I didn't realize it was a Robert Langdon character thing. Ugh, I can't. I mean, there's the same person, Forrest. How am I supposed to know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he won't wear a necktie because it reminds him of his days as a schoolboy at Phillips Exeter. And it, it's, it's just so suffocating. And he calls them little nooses. But you know what's not suffocating is a tube of fabric around your neck 24-7, <laughs> a la a turtleneck. Well, you want to look entrepreneurial like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs that, wears that a mock turtleneck. Man. So, well, or um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Holmes. God bless her. I still don't know if I want to do Elizabeth Holmes for Halloween or if I want to do Miss Piggy. We can talk <laughs> about this later. So once we, once Pam's been established, we quickly forget about her and learn now about Charles with Beltway Limousine, who's Mister Langdon's driver. There's a basket of hot muffins. Mm. That's what I have to say about that. Well, he says he gets in this town car and there's all this fancy shit inside. It's an Uber black. <laughs> and uh, he says, so this is how the other half lives. Oh, this and drove me like, insane. You are the Robert other Langdon, half, you idiot. Oh, you just talked about how you went to Phillips Exeter Academy. He's a we Harvard professor. You- we know his apartment is filled with stolen artifacts <laughs> and like expensive antiquities. I, I don't know what he's going on about his, his, his secondary father figure is one of the wealthiest men in America. We're also about God. to learn about how he like hand grinds Sumatran coffee in the mornings. Like <laughs> what an asshole <laughs> who hand grinds. What are you doing? God it's going it. to take you an hour. What the fuck? There's a guy at my previous job at, who every morning would come in with his coffee grinder and a scale and his pour over thing and spend like the first half an hour of the work day making his fucking coffee. I with a scale him. at work? Ugh. Chapter two. Um, you imagine my so, fucking joy when I remember that this is the book with the tattooed assassin guy. I was so oh, yeah. excited. <laughs> his name is Malach. The one who called himself Malach. Press the tip of the needle. It's so fucking good. Let's 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 read the sentence out loud. Yeah, go for it. The one who called himself Malach pressed the tip of the needle against his shaved head, sighing with pleasure as the sharp tool plunged in and out of his flesh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love it, love it. Good stuff. Just um, a regular sentence. Keep moving. Uh, he also <laughs> says the. Sorry, I want to finish the second sentence. Also, okay. The soft hum of the electric device nice was addictive uh, as was the bite of the needle sliding deep into his dermis and depositing its dye so he's doing such ridiculous olympic backflips to not say the word skin or ink <laughs> but he says needle twice i'm surprised he allowed needle um it's true i don't know what else to say though dermis <laughs> Okay. Oh, we get into some really bad shit in this one. Okay, keep moving. Yeah. So first, the goal of tattooing was never beauty. The goal was change. And that's going to be a big theme throughout this book is change. From the scarified Nubian priests of 2000 BC to the tattooed acolytes, the Sibylli cult of ancient Rome, to the Moco scarves of the modern Maori, 
humans have tattooed themselves. You'll note that uh, two of those things he mentioned, the previous ones, aren't tattoos. There are other forms of body modification, but whatever. Um, uh, and uh, there's also like a little, this is like, I guess, fairly early on in the last decade or two trend of tattoos becoming more popular and accepted. So uh, despite the ominous admonitions of Leviticus 1928, uh, that's just for me sorry keep going tattoos have become a rite of passage shared by millions of people in the modern age everyone from clean-cut teenagers to hardcore drug users to suburban housewives i mean those are definitely three distinct groups and not (laughs) not not, and not any crossover between them not at all well this was before the opium epidemic so Um, yeah but I, I posit to you that it was not before the wine mom epidemic. Uh, before yes, we necessarily the term wine mom, but so the act of tattooing okay. one's skin was a transformative declaration of power. And then he goes into a few flesh altering practices. It's going to be this is this is so I'm going to add a tri- uh, content warning uh, up top That's at the end of this. Probably a good call. But um, listen, it was 2009, and Dan Brown, as we all know, is a piece of shit uh, who doesn't care about anyone who's not exactly his demographic. So throwing that out there, here we go. (laughs) Um, The intoxicating feeling of control derived from physical transformation had addicted millions to flesh-altering practices, cosmetic surgery, body piercing, bodybuilding, and steroids. Although I would argue steroids are subsumed under bodybuilding and they're not in and of themselves a separate uh, physically altering process, whatever. Ellipses, even bulimia, and transgendering. The verb. The verb of transgendering. Yeah. You know how you transgender on the weekends? Yeah, I we've all been there. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. Also, yeah, on bikes. Like, bulimia is not about transformation, is it? It's like... I mean, it's an eating disorder not, that's, that's yeah. based on a fixation on being as thin as possible. But like... So, so eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia come from the same processes that, uh, would, that, that create like obsessive compulsive disorder. So it is, it does come from a place of control, of physical control. Um, but I mean, I mean, honestly, most of these do like people who become addicted to cosmetic surgery or even bodybuilding, like it's a control, uh, what's it called? It's a control disorder. And so... Fair enough. I would, I would, I would put it there, but transgenderism, which is bullshit. What the fuck? I don't even know where to start. Like, yeah, it I doesn't think belong it may here. Maybe just something we have to let lie and uh, move on from because I don't think he gets back into it at any point. I, I, I sure hope Dan not. Dan Brown trying to list off things that remind him of other things. <laughs> Yikes and we're going to get into good stuff like how sexy Malach is. He's so sexy. Uh, I love this book. His apartment sounds, or house sounds really cool too. I just want, I'm going to read this, this paragraph. Fair use. Um, a single bell chimed on Malach's grandfather clock and he looked up. 6.30 p.m. Leaving his tools, he wrapped the Kiryu silk robe, uh, a man of luxury, around his <laughs> naked six foot three body, hello, and strode down the hall. The air inside the sprawling mansion was heavy with the pungent fragrance of his skin dyes, ink, 
and smoke from the beeswax candles he used to sterilize his needles. The towering young man moved... He's 34. Um, the towering young man moved down the corridor past priceless Italian antiques, a Piranesi etching, a Savonarola chair, a silver Bugarini oil lamp. I would fuck this guy. <laughs> oh, 100%. 100,000%. Not, 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 not a doubt in my mind. <laughs> I'm in. I don't care. I He, he can... Uh, I almost made an awful joke about the uh, sharp tool plunging in and out of flesh. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's like impossible not to. <laughs> okay. I like it noted. So as he's preparing to go out for the night and work whatever mischief he's about to work. Um, so he's been, <laughs> he's been blasting throughout his house the Verdi Requiem. <laughs> and so while he's been tattooing himself, it's been the Lux Eterna. But right before he gets out to get pumped, he puts on the DS Ray. <laughs> Have you heard the Verdi DS Ray? No. Uh pull it up on like YouTube or something right now. Right now. You've okay. heard it before, I promise. I But it's it's like the most over the top piece of classical music that's ever been. I mean he's chilling in his mansion listening to fucking classical music, tattooing himself by candlelight. I'm like, this is the man I was promised. You know, like, all right, hell yeah. Let's get into it, baby. Like, you've heard it in movies before. It's the most over-the-top piece of music there is. Oh, shit, it's happening. (laughs) 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 Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this fucking rules! (laughs) Uh, fun fun fact and personal connection. (laughs) So, uh, in high school, I always liked to, uh, blast music in my car before and after school. And, uh, this was a regular feature (laughs) of my driving listening. I'm going to play this at the gym. It's good stuff, man. Where have I seen this? Sometimes they use it ironically when, like, a wedding is being ruined Mm -hmm. and someone is knocked into the cake and then they play this. Yeah, it's... It's played in a lot of movies. I think Quentin Tarantino uses it in a bunch of his, or at least in, I think it's in Django at some point. I'm going to give it 30 more seconds because my heart rate is so fucking mm-hmm. high right now. Okay, let's go. Yeah, it's 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 like an extremely good pump-up song. The lyrics are insane. <laughs> and so imagine, as this is playing, Malach, uh, against the backdrop of crashing timpani and parallel fifths, is bounding up the marble staircase, his robe billowing as he ascended on sinewy legs. Uh, He's also been fasting because uh, he's getting ready for rituals and stuff. Okay, I... Okay. And now he's entering his bedroom sanctuary with reverence, locking the door behind him. And, uh... Let's see. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh... As he moved towards his dressing area, he paused, feeling himself drawn to the enormous gilded mirror. Unable to resist, he turned and faced his own reflection. Slowly, as if unwrapping a priceless gift, Malach opened his robe to unveil his naked form. The vision awed him. I am a masterpiece. And that's body positivity. I mean, listen, that's my daily affirmation moving forward, right? Like, what is it that he says? I am an artifact. He says, I am an artifact, an evolving icon. And that's just me in the morning, <laughs> you know? Like, you say that like five times in the mirror? Hell yeah. To give the audience a clearer picture, uh, do you want to read the full description of what his tattoos look like? 
more than anything. It's pretty wild. Um, it's pretty funny. His massive body was shaved and smooth. He lowered his gaze first to his feet, which were tattooed with the scales and talons of a hawk. Above that, his muscular legs were tattooed as carved pillars. His left leg spiraled and his right leg vertically straight, straight, striated. There we go. Boaz and Jaquin? Something like that. Okay. His groin and abdomen formed a decorated archway, above which his powerful chest was emblazoned with a double-headed phoenix, each head in profile with its visible eye formed by one of Malach's nipples. Nipples is such a funny word. His shoulders, neck, face, and shaved head were completely covered with an intricate tapestry of ancient symbols and sigils. I am an artifact, an evolving icon. One mortal man had seen Malach naked 18 hours earlier. The man had shouted in fear, Good God, you're a demon. Oh my God. If you perceive me as such. He's so fucking sexy. What the hell? Because Malak understood that perception is a, a two-way street. He understands the ancients, uh, as the ancients had, that angels and demons, another Dan Brown book, were identical, interchangeable archetypes, all a matter of polarity. See, so this really complicates our angels and demons section at the end of the, at the, end of the, the book. Oh, fuck. You know? <laughs> That's Cause, true. Because I guess David Becker is an angel to some people. Some people That's like Dan God. Brown. <laughs> Some the real sickos out there, <laughs> monsters and freaks. <laughs> Exhilarated um, by his reflection, he could already feel his power growing. Oh, I don't know if I I am drawn to Malach, or if I see myself in him. You know, some of both. Definitely some of both. I I, I think I think I'm more drawn to than seeing myself uh, in his reflection. Honestly, I must say. <laughs> It's more of an aspiration than a uh, identification. I see that. I see that. Um, so the, so the, the very on... top of his head is empty, and he's going to get something to fill it. So I don't. I'm not clear at this point if his whole plan is to find something to finish his tattoo with. I don't know what his um. Just that last piece of inspiration. What is his what's, motivation? What's the finishing his... touch here? <laughs> Seems like a lot of trouble to go through, but stop. It's, it's a, a little sparrow. Hard. It's a little hard with an arrow suit that is his mom. <laughs> It's a sparrow. It's an anchor that says, uh, I will not sink. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so now we're back to the infinitely less interesting Robert Langdon in chapter three. Oh, God. Uh, he's in the car going over his notes. So he's uh, about to have a flashback to how he wound up in this situation. Why is he in Washington, D.C.? Record scratch. And Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he thinks to himself, I woke up this morning anticipating a quiet Sunday at home. And now I'm a few minutes away from the U.S. Capitol. I mean, he woke up in Boston. It's not like he woke up in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> uh, so yeah, at 4.45 a.m., he woke up plunging into dead calm water and swimming his laps. Uh, get a lot about his physique. Ugh. Who cares I mean, when Malach is on the scene, <laughs> you know? Six foot three and fully tattooed. Okay, I'll stop. I'm sorry. And then he gets back home from the pool and starts grinding his coffee and oh there's a uh, he's got a voicemail i'm sorry i, I have to stop the, you again i know i cover this already but i just, hand grinding sumatra coffee beans and savoring the exotic scent that filled his kitchen who 
Hand grinding coffee beans takes for fucking ever. Even like the most obnoxious coffee snobs would like they use an electric grinder. You know? Yeah. No one uses I, like I, a coffee I, mill. I had a hand grinder for like a week and I was like, this is not worth it. Right. Unless you're like in Colonial Williamsburg trying to prove something. Like, please continue. You're the Victorian couple. <laughs> uh so the message is from Peter Solomon's executive assistant, executive assistant Anthony Gelbart. Red flag number one. <laughs> I totally um, missed miss his last name. <laughs> and, and he's like, "Oh, Peter, uh, Peter Solomon needs to get in touch with you," uh, and gives him a phone number, which apparently used to go to a voicemail line that would say, "You've reached Peter Solomon's voicemail," but now it just goes to a broken voicemail box. <sighs> I called it. Well, you know, time uh, <laughs> time flies. Time passes as the world turns. And so then, so then Landing goes to return the call. And if you do some math here, uh, since Peter Solomon is 12 years Langdon senior, we know that Robert Langdon, we now have a definitive age for him. In 2009, he is 46. Okay. Uh, and he met Peter Solomon. So we're doing a flashback within a flashback now. Uh, as a sophomore, Langdon had been required to attend a lecture by Peter Solomon, who spoke with a contagious passion, presenting a dazzling vision of semiotics and archetypal history that sparked Langdon's passion for symbols. But it was not his brilliance, but his humility and his gentle gray eyes that gave Langdon the courage to write him a thank you letter. What kind of fucking nerd writes a thank you letter for a lecture i wish uh, robert langdon don't tell was me. gay <laughs> i wish robert langdon was gay he'd be such a better character or at least bisexual yeah like i think there's a susan of something here uh the young sophomore had never dreamed that peter solomon one of america's wealthiest and most intriguing young intellectuals would ever write back but penthouse he did <laughs> and it had been the beginning of a truly gratifying friendship uh, he came from the ultra-wealthy Solomon family who, like the Rothschilds, their surname had carried a mystique of American royalty and success. And Peter took up the family mantle after his father's untimely death. Ooh. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I, hmm, maybe there's something there. I hadn't considered that. <laughs> and uh, we also learned that Peter Solomon is just like thirsty as hell because not only did he have his assistant leave the voicemail he also faxed robert wow don't double to, uh, text i mean come on don't be desperate oof. yikes yikes uh, <laughs> we get that phone number again still doesn't work i didn't call it a second time though and uh langdon langdon calls and doesn't get a broken voice message he gets peter solomon's office anthony picks up and basically tells him that um there's a lecture in the National Statuary Hall for some like annual Smithsonian fundraiser thing. And their scheduled speaker had to cancel at the last minute. And so would Robert Langdon mind filling in at this lecture tonight? And Langdon's like, yeah, sure, I guess. <laughs> He's going to give a lecture about symbols. You still there? I'm here. Yeah, I'm I'm just, you know, this is what's going on. So I'm just with it. Yeah. And we also learn about Peter Solomon's younger sister, Catherine, who is now a leading figure in the new cutting-edge discipline called noetic science. We'll learn more about noetic science as it goes on. Well, 
before we do, Langdon says, it's all Greek to me. And that's a little joke because noetic is from a Greek oh, phrase. Oh, that's cute. What does it mean? Uh, I forget. I think it's something about knowledge. Mm. Okay. Well, basically, uh, so Solomon is not available. He's in a conference call or something at the moment. And so uh, mm-hmm. actually, Anthony is just going to fill you in on anything, which should be Langdon's first clue, considering he's been running from powerful like villains for what two years straight now or something like i think it's i think it's been five or so years since his, or even more than five okay, years this book, it's been like six years since his last adventure fair, but i do want to say that in his last adventure sir ian mckellen uh his closest friend and confidant turned out to be an evil psychopath um so he, you shouldn't even trust your friends and he should know that even if they're really sexy and have great eyes and um to take his assistant's word for it seems yeah, so it's a little stupid. dicey. Okay. So in chapter four, Dan Brown gets back on the tip of using too many adverbs. Uh, the U.S. Capitol building stands regally at the eastern end of the National Mall. Fuck off with that. Okay. <laughs> the neoclassical architecture is meticulously designed to echo the grandeur of ancient Rome whose ideals were the inspiration for America's founders in establishing the laws and culture of the new Republic. You have anything to say about that? You know what I have? Uh, I have the note that I have written in my book about Go it, for it, which is in between asterisks, it says jerk off motion. <laughs> Great. That's all I wanted. Um, so uh, we're focused on a security guard named Nunez. With the Enya, Alfonso Nunez, um, who yes. is his, he is tasked with the uh, task, whoa, okay, <laughs> of keeping the Capitol building safe, and a limping, probably ex-military veteran uh, person has arrived, and he engages him in conversation because that's the protocol: is to engage any man alone in conversation because they're most likely to pull off an attack. Um, it's true. But before we get to that, since we're, we're going through this chapter entirely too fast. Are we? We skipped some of the um, chapter three stuff. I just really quick in chapter I, three, uh, Langdon knew his own bank account had too few zeros to qualify him as culturally elite. And I just, I mean, jerk off yeah. motion. Anyway, please continue. Uh, so uh, Alfonso Nunez carefully studied the male visitor now approaching his checkpoint. The man had a shaved head. Here's how you fix it. If, you, if the editor was better at his job. Newly hired security guard Alfonso Nunez carefully studied the visitor now approaching his checkpoint. The man had a shaved head. We already established his gender in the following sentence. You don't need to use that weird male visitor construct. <laughs> the bald man had been lingering in the lobby. There are a lot of ways to go for concision here, but yep. he is not a concise man. <laughs> Dan is also, not concise. he was... W- the visitor is wearing a tattered army navy surplus coat. I think you got to pick one or the other. I don't think you can have an army navy surplus coat. I think it's got to be army surplus or navy surplus. Okay, so this headphone's going to die in a second. And when it does, I will switch to my other headphone and I will just keep charging one at a time and switching them. <laughs> Excellent. Cuz I am um, so irresponsible with my AirPods. You have no idea. Yeah, I've I I won't even let myself get them. There's no way. I haven't lost any uh, of them yet, which is incredible considering the kind of person I am. But to be fair, I want to I want to spending way more on the wired 
lightning jack headphones because they break within i don't think i've had any one last more than a month and a half two months maybe mm-hmm. and like even when i try to be very gentle with them they just don't last very long well i lost the dongle I fucking hate apple headphones that that i would normally use to uh the dongles break pretty quick too they fray very quickly it sounds like you're just you're rude to, to your... your pockets you're rude to your headphones. It, I, they, it, it comes in and out of your pocket. And so like they go, they, they you know, there's motion in the wire and they fray very easily. It's very irritating. They're not quality products. They are not quality products. So yeah, the Capitol building is almost empty because tonight are the NFC playoffs and the Washington football team is playing in the playoff game. And we're going to be hearing about it a lot throughout this book. Uh, and Nunez has been carefully trained not to be... Uh, sympathetic to the handicapped and injured. And so he's going to make this motherfucker with his uh, broken arm or whatever uh, go through all the normal search and metal detector stuff. I mean, the thing is that like in this chapter, human instinct is both a strength and a weakness, right? Because it says human instinct made special allowances for the injured and handicapped, but it was an instinct Nunez had been trained to override. But then later... Strangely, that uh, Nunez liked this guy. Strangely, that counted for a lot around here. Human instinct was America's first line of defense against terrorism. It was a perfect fact that human intuition was a more accurate detector of danger than all the electronic gear in the world. The gift of fear. So what is it, Dan Brown? What is the truth? (laughs) That's why the TSA is notably effective at their jobs. (laughs) Well, they're so wrapped up in, um, in tech gadgets like metal detectors that... I mean, they could never That's be true. expected to be effective at their job. Yeah, the guy goes through the metal detector, but uh, and it goes off. But he's like, "Oh, it's a ring on my finger. Uh, it's 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 my finger got swollen when I broke my hand slipping on the ice. So uh, you can't see it, but it's just you gotta do the wand thing. It's fine." <laughs> and then he's just like, "Ah, oh, you know, I appreciate this guy. Let's let him through." He has uh, some tattoos on his fingertips. And Nunez says, do those hurt? And the guy said, no, less than you might think, which we'll understand the significance of later. Yeah, he's also, the guy looks like he's wearing makeup, like self-tanner or something. And Nunez is like, "Eh, whatever guy, you know, we all (laughs) want to look tan. It's it's winter time. I think it's got to be sometime in January or February because it's the NFC playoff game. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and then they bo- they bond over hating their wives because wives suck, you know? You know when you <laughs> choose to... be shopping. <laughs> be shopping. You know how you choose to uh, bond with another person for, your, for the rest of your life and you make a very serious and solemn decision to be life partners and then you just fucking hate that person for the next 50 years? <laughs> Women yeah. be shopping. Um just one last thing in this chapter. The true genius, however, was the sling, which disguised the potent object Malach was transporting into the building. Uh, the Malach's most po- potent object Stand. is his dick. Let's move on to chapter five. Uh, he also had a padded belly. He's wearing a little, like, one of those inflatable sumo suits. Oh, the, a little less threatening. Do you know the, the beer belly, which is a thing you can wear that you can <laughs> smuggle beer into like a baseball game? <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw that at some point. They also I make the wine it. rack, which is, you know, oh, it's booze. I understand. <laughs> so you can have like some body temperature rosé <laughs> at the beach. Mmm, just what I always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> 
chapter five. So here's where we're going to learn about the SMSC, the Smithsonian Museum Support Center, which is at 4210 Silver Hill Road. Does that mean anything? No, it's just it's just where it is. <laughs> um, it, it, it it does exist. It's a it's a big old building made up of interconnected pods. But like, don't get excited. They're not cool pods. The pods are just big warehouses. Um, and it's where basically much of the stuff that's not on display at the Smithsonian lives at this support center. Mm. Um. So as I learned from doing some research before the podcast, <laughs> about 20% or so of the uh, museum's collections are on display. Mm. About 40% are at the support center and the remaining 40% are at various locations that like aren't on display at the museums it's themselves. Like just the basement or something? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Catherine Solomon, who was briefly mentioned earlier as being, you know, at the head of noetic science or whatever, is driving her Volvo up to the security gate. And the guy's like, oh, not a football fan, because uh, lest we forget the playoffs on. <laughs> and she's she's like, oh, not really. It's uh, I'm here for my meeting with I have a weekly meeting with my brother. Yeah, we get some fun, some fun Catherine uh, description because we have to, you know, get a physical description, which for, you know, to Dan, Dan Brown's credit, we are getting that in spades for every person, regardless of gender. Um, so let's just get through that real quick. I just want to note that she looks at herself in the rearview mirror out of a force of habit rather than actual vanity because vain women are the worst, <laughs> you know? You know how yeah. women just be like looking at themselves in the mirror? That fucking sucks. Now, if Malach wants to admire his perfect form in the mirror, no problem. Who can blame him? I would too, but this bitch better not be vain anyway. Uh, yeah. It's also This is also a good instance of, uh, we've established that Dan Brown is into older women and Catherine, I mean, in the relative sense, and <laughs> Catherine Solomon, unlike most of our sexy heroines of all the thrillers we read, is a 50-year-old woman. I want to note that... She's eight years, her brother's junior. Dan Brown likes older women, but also co-eds. Just... Yes. Just to be very clear about that. Um, Catherine Solomon had been blessed with the resilient Mediterranean skin. Hey, Mediterranean skin, we out here. Okay. (laughs) Even at 50 years old, she had a smooth olive complexion. She used almost no makeup and wore her thick black hair unstyled and down... Like her older brother, she had gray eyes and a slender patrician elegance. No fatties allowed. Absolutely not. I'm crying. Aquiline noses only. <laughs> nice. Um, basically, they look, they look like twins, even though her brother is older than her. Uh, she has no husband because she's married to the, the sea. The sea is her husband. Uh, the sea being science. Um <laughs> Thanks. I was very confused. <laughs> well, you know how like sailors are married to the say, sea. Victoria Vetro is married to the sea. Don't confuse well, me. Well, she was she, also she was She also had Mediterranean skin. I'm aware. I'm already confused between the two. <laughs> um so she does noetics and she wrote some books about it. Cool. And uh she calls Malach, I guess. Yeah, but she doesn't know him as Malach. And he but... Yeah, okay. Um he gives her new information. That which your brother believes is hidden in D.C., it can be found. And Catherine says, it's real. And Malach says, sometimes a legend that endures for centuries endures for a reason. Which is why Dan Brown writes all of these books. 
I mean, I think he makes up the mysteries. I don't think they actually endure for centuries. I've got to be honest. Uh, another sidetrack. I've been reading Baudolino by another Umberto Eco book. Okay. And Baudolino is basically 12th century Forrest Gump, but with more lies involved and also drugs. So uh, Baudolino starts off as a little kid somewhere in Italy who by accident runs into Frederick Barbarossa and winds up becoming like his adopted son, essentially. And then as he's, he's telling his story to this uh, old guy in Constantinople as the fourth crusade is sacking the city. And uh, according to Baudolino, just like every single major historical thing that happened in the 12th century happened because of him telling lies mostly. (laughs) Uh, and I'm trying, oh, yes. So at some point in it, as they're fabricating this story about Prester John in the East, uh, the, the, he's a mythological Christ, Christian king beyond the infidel lands to the East, you know, during the Crusades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, they, in one paragraph, dispense with the whole San Greal, Song Real distinction. And I'm like, damn, Umberto Echo just did the Da Vinci Code in one sentence. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's what I like to see. Uh, chapter six. All right. Is this as close as you can get? Is that your Robert Langdon voice? That was... Well, it's, it's one of the time. I always talk about him having a deep voice. <laughs> some quiet, uh, uh, quiet storm, 92.5 <laughs> on a Friday night, kind of. I mean, they always, they always talk about having like a deep voice, which like is not really how I picture him in my head. I picture him having more of a Dan Brown voice. But, uh, <laughs> I hate his voice. Such is life. <laughs> so it's 6.50 p.m. and Dan Brown or Robert Lennon's got to walk from a little ways away from the Capitol building, about a quarter mile because there's construction going on. And uh, luckily, that gets to take him down through the Capitol Visitor Center, an underground city to rival parts of Disney World, with over half a million square feet of space for exhibits, restaurants, and meeting Sorry, halls. Sorry, to rival parts of, of Disney World? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, to rival what? Like, uh, the tree in the middle? Or, like... I, I, I guess the underground parts. <laughs> the the uh, new Avatar World at Disney World, which I really want to go God, see. I forgot about that. <laughs> I really want to see it. Speaking of Marion Wilmington again, <laughs> you've seen all of her Avatar I tweets. Sure have. <laughs> if you don't understand what's happening in America right now, watch Avatar again. <laughs> watch Avatar again. Um, <laughs> in case you're wondering when we recorded this episode, <laughs> it is what one or two days. I don't know because of the time uh, difference. Two two days. It was two days after two Marianne days after Williamson second... uh, transcended us all. <laughs> uh so yeah robert lane is expecting to be claustrophobic in this underground space but he's not it's actually uh wide open uh one time on our eighth grade east coast trip uh me and another guy so we we had to go to our trip was timed with george w bush's second inauguration whoa um and so we got we i was there i was there i saw the man being sworn in a second time uh and the night before we went to like the concert thing they do Mm -hmm. and i don't know who anyone was i'm sure toby keith or something was there uh but we were walking back 
to the buses or something, or no, we were walking to the Capitol Visitor Center afterwards, and this girl had chosen in January in Washington, D.C. to wear, like, shorts and flip-flops, and so she got, like, just about frostbite on her feet, and so me and this other guy had to use our Boy Scout skills to do, like, a a two-man carry to get her (laughs) to the Capitol Visitor Center, so that's my Capitol Visitor Center story. And you were 13? Yeah. 13 and already a fucking hero. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't go to the Capitol Center because it was still under construction when I went. Oh, that must mean I didn't actually go there. I went somewhere else that I that seemed like it was big and underground to me. Oh, no, you might have. It was just like at the time that I went, there was like a one year construction thing happening. Okay. Um, Like they were updating it or whatever. So I didn't get to go, but I did get to go. Did I go? Fuck. I don't know. I don't think so. I went with my family <laughs> later, though. Um, the only thing I really remember about my East Coast trip is when we were in Boston. Um, so they gave us meal vouchers instead of food. And we were 13. Oh, yeah. And we were set loose in uh, Quincy Market. And so we did not buy real food. We bought uh, pretzels for dinner. Big time. And then that night, we were starving because pretzels aren't food. And and so we called our like chaperone. We were like, we're so hungry. We're going to die. And so she brought us, she didn't have any food either. So she just brought us like six, you know, those giant truffles they sell in Boston. The ones that are like the size of your palm. No, I do not. They're the size of your palm. They're usually full of some kind of liqueur, but that's what she had on hand. Oh God. <laughs> So she just brought us like six huge chocolate truffles and we didn't sleep. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Great. Um, also, also, sorry, I know this is not the East Coast trip power hour, but this is the best thing I've ever done. So uh, there was this girl that I went to middle school with who was very, very rude. Like she was very, she was a stereotypical mean girl and we were walking around the National Mall and she goes, Lena, you have kind of a big butt. And I was like, yeah, Sasha. Okay. <laughs> I like didn't reply <laughs> because what am I supposed to say? Like, I'm supposed to be like, what? No, I don't. Like I, I do. What do I <laughs> and then later we were still walking and she tries it with, she didn't get the reaction she wanted out of me. So she tried it with this girl, Jessica. And she goes, Jessica, you have kind of a big butt. And I go, well, Sasha, you have kind of a big nose, but I don't say anything about it. And Sasha was so <laughs> upset. And it was one of those moments where, like, you have the esprit de l'escalier, you know, the, like, later you come up with a good comeback. But I had the opportunity oh, yeah. to use it in defense of someone else. <laughs> it was the best thing to ever happen to me. Okay. That rules, man. Let's go. So we learned that Robert Langdon's the kind of D-bag who calls buildings her. Uh, as the escalator ascended, Langdon took a deep breath and tried to gather his thoughts. He gazed up through the rain-speckled glass ceiling at the mountainous form of the illuminated Capitol Dome overhead. It was an astonishing building, high atop her roof, almost 300 feet in the air, blah, 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 blah. What an asshole. Uh, so we learned about some of the ghosts hanging around the Capitol building. Uh, I didn't look into them. and so I know about the black cat. That one's like a thing I've heard of. Then it's time for a classic... Robert Langdon explains it all in a lecture flashback. Oh, hell yeah. You know, the one thing that that Robert Langdon, sorry, Dan Brown and I really do agree on um, is that Harvard kids are fucking idiots, you know? Oh, hell yeah. They're mad stupid. And like, I'm glad that DB and I are on the same page here. 
So last year, the freshman Jared Kushner had rushed wild-eyed into Langdon's classroom with a printout from the web. So when Dan Brown said things like a printout from the web uh, in Digital Fortress in 1982 or whatever the fuck that book was written in, it was one thing. But the year is 2009. And he's describing a freshman at Harvard running into his classroom with a printout from the web. It was a street map of D.C. on which certain streets had been highlighted to form various shapes. Satanic pentacles. I thought they weren't satanic, Dan. Uh, a Masonic compass and square. The head of Baphomet. Proof, apparently, the Masons who designed Washington, D.C. were involved in some kind of dark, mystical conspiracy. And I love the idea of Jared Kushner sitting there in his dorm room. And he finds, you know, uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels dot info, and it has this like <laughs> diagram of DC. And he flies into a panic, prints it out, and runs to his professor's office hours. He's like, Doctor Langdon, Doctor Langdon, Doctor Langdon, what? <laughs> like, I, I, that idea is, is wonderful to me. Um, I will say that I don't think Jared Kushner is that guy. I think the person you're thinking know, of is not. Ted Cruz. Uh, it's Matt Iglesias. <laughs> Better. Keep going. Um, and so then Langdon's like, look, I can take a map of Detroit and find the same shapes. And the kid's like, oh. And then he's like, ah. Uh, I teach a course called Occult Symbols that you could come and take next semester and we can learn all about this. We spend a lot of time talking about D.C., and the kid's like, there are occult symbols in D.C. There, there are devil shit. And Lane's like, no, occult just means hidden or obscured. In times of religious oppression, knowledge that was counter-doctrinal had to be kept hidden or occult. Uh, and because snooze. the church felt threatened by this, they redefined anything occult as evil and the prejudice survived, which is like not really how etymology works, but whatever, man. <laughs> um, and so then we go to the lecture itself. And uh, sure enough, this kid is sitting in the front row uh, uh, so he puts up a slide, right? And he's like, uh, who recognizes the building in the picture? And dozens of these Harvard tryhards, like, that's the U.S. Capitol. I know that. And uh, Langdon's like, correct. There are nine million pounds of ironwork in that dome, an unparalleled feat of architectural ingenuity for the 1850s. That doesn't have to do with symbols. Fuck you. Who cares? Awesome, somebody shouted. <laughs> Langdon rolled his eyes, wishing somebody would ban that word. Langdon. What the fuck is wrong with awesome? <laughs> and then... It, it literally is awesome. You said it was an unparalleled feat of architectural ingenuity. It's not me being like, yeah. I'm, I'll make it to your party a little bit late, and you're like, awesome, you know? Like, like in, in some other novel, I guarantee you at some point he's going to write, awesome. The students didn't make the connection that the word was literally applicable here because it meant inspiring awe. Did he not already do that? I but, thought he oh, did that fuck. already in Angels and Demons. It, it seems like he, it's, he must have. Um, and so then another unbelievable thing happens. So he's like, okay, how many of you guys have been to Washington, D.C.? And here at Harvard, a couple of hands went up, a scattering of hands. See, this book was published in 2009, which is after I went on the East Coast trip. Which means that, like, many children had been on the East Coast trip, no doubt many of whom went to Harvard. So, like... Exactly. This is post-East Coast trip, just because he doesn't know... Oh, God. Okay, sorry. And there's, there's, there's just no fucking way that, like, 
I'm sure kids from the East Coast like do a Washington D.C. Yeah, they do. Yes, they do. Yes, correct. And like, if you can afford to go to Harvard, your parents afford it. We're able to afford to send you on the Washington D.C. trip. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so then he's like, "And how many have you been to Rome, Paris, Madrid, or London?" And then almost all the hands in the room go up, and I think that's bullshit. (laughs) Anyways. one of the rites of passage for American college kids was a summer with a Eurorail ticket for the harsh reality of life set in. But that's usually after they graduate college, so they wouldn't be in Dan Brown's lecture hall. You know how the harsh reality of a Harvard education sets in. Christ. <laughs> and there's like some drinking age jokes, and then. They uh, creak in their wooden pews because apparently they sit in pews at Harvard. Cool. <laughs> You know, it used to be a religious institution school. Um, and then he's like, why don't you guys want to see D.C. where there's, you know, great architecture, art, and symbolism. Symbolism. Some of the world's greatest symbolism. <laughs> uh, and someone's like, the ancient stuff is cooler. Correct. And like, he's like, by ancient, by ancient stuff, I assume you mean castles, crypts, temples, that sort of thing. And no, the answer is no, Robert, by ancient stuff, I mean stuff from ancient fucking times. <laughs> Asshole. They're like, um, yeah, man, crypt, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I went to Europe, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he's like, you know, th- there's th- there's all that shit in Washington D.C. Castles, crypts, pyramids, temples, and he can tell they're getting interested because there's less creaking in the pews now. They're not fucking around so much. It could be that uh, that they just settled in finally, right? Yeah. No. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so then, uh, this is so fucking stupid. <laughs> My friends, Langdon said, lowering his voice and moving to the front of the stage, in the next hour you will discover that our nation is overflowing with secrets and hidden history. And exactly as in Europe, all of the best secrets are hidden in plain view. The wooden pews fell dead silent. Gotcha. Ugh. And so, uh, here's some shit about George Washington laying the, like, base stone for the Capitol in a Masonic regalia from a little rope and pulley thing because he's a big fucking nerd. Mm-hmm. Uh... And he's like, you know, all these guys were Freemasons and all these stones were laid at significant astrological times when the auspicious Caput Draconis was in Virgo. I meant to look that up and then I just didn't. Uh, Head of the dragon, I think. That makes sense. But I don't know what it means. I feel like I should (laughs) so I can do shit when Caput Draconis is in Virgo. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. If it's auspicious for the founding of the American continent country, then uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's the kind of auspicious omen I want to base my life around. Fair. Head of the dragon, bitch. Do you mean the American Empire? <laughs> well, I don't know why in uh, Virgo. Uh, I, I have no idea. I will uh, have to do some research. I, I I'll come back. I'll come uh, back next time we record and talk to you about the Caput Draconis. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and so they're like, the founding fathers believed in astrology. And he says, big time. <laughs> so he hates awesome, but he like, but he's okay with saying big time. What a fuckhead. Hell um, yeah. Big time, man. Far out. <laughs> Groovy. <laughs> um, 
And so he spent some time convincing them they believed in astrology and that Washington, D.C. is replete with astrological symbols. And then when they're like, why? Since he's a good teacher, uh, he's like, ah, to, to know why, you've got to take my other course on mysticism. <laughs> Asshole. you got to pay $10,000 for my other course. Uh, and then these, the kid's like, uh, why can't you just tell us? And he's like, I can't do that. Some of you are only freshmen. I'm afraid it might blow your minds. I hate him. Whoa. I hate him. <laughs> I hate him so much. And then he, then he like does some myth dispelling about the Freemasons. Oh, first he tells them to like, join the know. Masons to find out, and then they're like, oh, that's true. "No, we can't. <laughs> it's a super secret society." <sighs> he was like, "Then why do they wear rings and their buildings are marked and you know their meeting times in the newspaper?" Sure. It's, yeah, there's a lot uh, of this. Uh, um, a f- feminist dares ask a question about <laughs> why women aren't in the Freemasons, and he's like, "A fair point, but you see, several hundred years ago, that it used to be, or whatever, it started traditionally as a stonemasons guild. So of course there were no women, and so it's okay that there are still no women." It's so good. <laughs> so, uh, it's it's like it's so. So the paragraphs here nonetheless the woman said masonry is a powerful organization from which women are excluded and then langdon's like i'm not gonna address that point so what i will do is instead just think about how i don't know if they're powerful uh you know perceptions of the masons range from there being a group of harmless old men who like to play dress up all the way to an underground cabal of power brokers who ran the world the truth, no doubt, was somewhere in the middle. I mean, what a good centrist. In some doubt, and like that's not that's that's not. So when you say that, you are acknowledging that they are at least somewhat powerful because they're not powerless and they're not all powerful. If the answer is somewhere in the middle, then they're sort of powerful. And so it's fucked up. You can't be a woman mason. Yeah, um, he's not helping here. Except you can, even if they you are can, powerless. You can, you can, if they're just sitting around and yeah. playing dress up, then why can't women? I want to fight. Yeah, it's, it's messed up. But you can join the, the uh, Eastern Star, the Eastern Star, which are the Lady Masons. I mean, that's lit. But okay. <laughs> I, be, I mean, I bet it's cooler, but I bet it's also still pretty shitty. Yeah. Uh, and so then Dan Brown overreaches again. <laughs> so one of the kids like Masonry sounds like a cult, and Dan Brown's like, you know, cults are just a, a point of view, I guess. Uh, if you think their shit's freaky, you can join my cult. And she's like, this, you're in a this cult? This sounds like the beginning the of Nexium. The, one, right. one second. <laughs> uh, the student from the women's center looked uneasy. You're in a cult? She's correct to be uneasy. You, you know what happens when professors <laughs> start cults? Sex abuse. Yeah. Langdon nodded and lowered his voice to a conspiratorial whisper in his lecture hall. Mm-hmm. Don't tell anyone, Mm-mm. but on the pagan day of the sun god Ra, Aww. I kneel at the foot of an ancient instrument of torture and consume ritualistic symbols of blood Shut and flesh. Shut the fuck up. Which is, you know, he's talking about the communion, but also like that day of the sun god Ra shit uh, is not inconceivable. I guess the Romans got the seven day week from the Egyptians and the Romans on Sunday would venerate the sun. But like there's no explicit connection between Ra and, or Ray, as uh, it might be more properly said, since we don't really understand Egyptian vowels. But anyways, uh, he's overreaching again. He should be the Holy Roman Day of the Sun, whatever. Uh, and now we're back out of this flashback that Dan Brands had time to 
walk through the Capitol Visitor Center. And at seven o'clock, he's late for his lecture, but he rolls into the statuary hall and uh, stopped in his tracks. So something's very wrong. Uh, let's do some men to avoid. It's been a minute. I don't, I think we didn't do this for disclosure, did we? Uh, no, because I forgot. Okay, about it. number men to avoid number question mark. Number something. <laughs> men who carry satchels. Is a satchel the same as a shoulder bag? I would say so. I got a satchel. I like me. <laughs> Fuck off, dude. Um, my, okay, so you, you meet people who have satchels, and they're regular people, and they just happen to be like a graphic designer in San Francisco, and they're fine. <laughs> and then and they bike to work, and they're like t- totally okay people. And then you also meet like, you know, your typical like cargo shorts um, fedora guy with a satchel. And that's, yeah. I think I think it's like it's the kind of thing where like, not all satcheled men are to avoid, but almost all men to avoid have satchels. Um, Sounds to me like the actual man to avoid is the man in cargo shorts and/or the man in the fedora. Correct. All right. I think we're focusing on the wrong article here, the wrong accessory. Men with vanity plates like BMW for Dan or OK Guy. For sure. So the first one Absolutely. Correct. is, I mean, you know. It's, it's, a, mind, it's a mind fuck because the book's by Danielle Brown. But it's about. But the actual author is Dan Brown. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, is he trying to tell, or is she trying to tell us something? You know? Um, okay Guy is so. If you. That one's almost kind of funny, <laughs> honestly. Right. I feel like if you've gone to the trouble of getting a vanity plate and you just go with. I'm an okay guy. Like, <laughs> it's pretty fucking funny. It's pretty good. That's some peak dad, you know? Okay, this yeah. is very um, okay. apropos. Um, men who use self-tanning lotion. Is he trying to tell me to avoid I... malach? Because I won't. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do, <laughs> damn. I'm going to fuck the sexy villain, Dan, and you can't stop me. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that it's yeah, that... it's better to use self-tanning lotion than to get skin cancer. Exactly. Men who bring their telephones to dinner. So... Uh, that's all of us now, gang. I mean, A, it's if we're talking about cell phones, we are all to avoid. And then... The use of telephones here is so <laughs> strange because <laughs> it makes me imagine bringing like a corded telephone into a restaurant and just plugging it in it's somewhere. A <laughs> it's a power move. So what are you supposed? To- Excuse me. Where, where, where's your uh, phone jack? <laughs> I remember a long, long time ago. I had a book. I think it was um, was it like the worst case scenario handbook? But it showed you how to like, oh yeah, jury rig a phone to be able to be plugged into any phone jack. Um, it was just like a handset that you could, like, you would you would glue the fucking cord to, and then you could just, like, use huh. it in an emergency. Which, wow. Um, so what, let's say I'm a, let's say it's the, the 1990s, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a shoulder-padded... A high-powered businessman with that shirt where it's blue and then it's white around the collar. You know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. And and I have a, like Howard Hamlin wears in Better Call Saul. You got it. And 
And I, I, I'm going to dinner with a lady friend, perhaps my secretary, you know, who's, who's asking, who wants to know. And, um, and I have my cell phone because I'm high powered and I'm, I'm very important. What am I supposed to do with my phone? Not bring it with me? Leave it in the car? Leave it in my BMW for Dan where it might get stolen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there's an argument to be made that having your, like, using your phone during dinner is no good. Sure. But having it is fine. Right. Okay, next one. And that's that's that. Men who use binaca. What What is... What's what's? Uh, I was gonna look it up and I forgot. As as I, as I promised when I typed these to you, I immediately uh, forgot what the fuck they were. Banaka, banaka. I think it's just breath. It's it's breath spray. It's the it's like the breath. It's like the shit you spray in your mouth. Okay. Um. Well, I I guess I don't know what the problem is. Better than nothing, homie. Yeah, no. Is it like if if he uses it in lieu of brushing his teeth? That's like a person who uses hand sanitizer after using the bathroom, right? Yeah, but, but it doesn't just say it doesn't say in lieu of toothbrushes. It just says men who use. I think it. more men could could be conscious of the way they smell before coming close to me. Um, so, just please spray whatever you must spray upon upon your physical form to make yourself presentable. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Finally, men who cut their own hair. Um, if you're like bald, that's fine. I mean, I don't expect you to go somewhere to get your head shaved, but, um, yeah, I mean, don't cut your own hair. You're good at it, but, but they rarely are. And also it. like, we live in a society forest <laughs> and, and, you know, hairdressers have training and they can help you and like, so many men are single because they don't know what to do with their hair. Because um, it, it just gives off an air of like general incompetence and immaturity. Oh, I'm I'm single because everyone knows my hair is too powerful for them to handle. <laughs> That's correct, Forrest. I'm with you there. Um, so just go get a fucking... Go, and don't go to Supercuts. Like, well, okay. I guess it doesn't matter. I'm going to the salon in about a... a look. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Well, I mean, okay. So I guess many men get their hair cut, what, every four to six weeks? So maybe going to a salon is is not, like, feasible financially? Although, how much do men, like, spend on their hair? What, $20? I spend, like, 50 but I also... But you go, like, once every two years. Go, I mean, I, I would go less, but like when I live at home, my mom makes me go... <laughs> Uh, You're gonna want to so cut yeah. that one out. <laughs> I've been going, I've been, going, I've been going like every two or three months. It fucking sucks. I hate it. See, I go every, um, I go every six months or so if I make it, but it costs me like eighty dollars. Yeah. But I always come out looking fly. You know, I'm not about okay. I'm not about to take scissors to my own hair, and I feel like men's hair is so difficult to like get right because my hair is long and you can like lose mistakes in it but if your hair is like mm. you've you fucked up the line at the back of the neck or your sideburns are uneven like that's noticeable don't do that shit at home anyway yeah one of my friends found this like extremely mean and uh short-tempered russian barber in la that he would go to like once every two weeks because like the haircut looked incredible for 
six days <laughs> that looked like shit. <laughs> it was it was amazing. <laughs> okay, let's get through one more chapter, and then I probably got to get dressed okay. because I'm still in my pajamas. Oh, good for you. Okay. So we're back with Catherine Solomon. Uh, she's gotten out of her um, Volvo. She's wearing jeans and a cashmere sweater, keeping it cash. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, and uh, going into work. And it says that the collection of the Smithsonian has only 2% on display at any one time, the other 98% to be stored somewhere, which, as I told you earlier, stats wise, simply not mm -hmm. true. I have a, uh, the Smithsonian made a little uh, web page for some true and false from. The lost symbol Did for they? Oh, yes. I love when they reply. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Uh, and so this next paragraph lists some of the things they have there, mm -hmm. which is to say giant Buddhas, handwritten codices, poison darts from New Guinea, jewel encrusted knives, a kayak made of baleen. And uh, the Sasonian <laughs> goes over this in detail. Uh, fiction. This may be splitting hairs, but a source at the MSC says that Brown was shown poison darts from Ecuador on the tour he took at the facility in 2008. They have a few blowgun darts from New Guinea, but they do not know if they are poisoned. Also, some handwritten Islamic and Buddhist manuscripts, prayer books, and Korans, all from the 19th and 20th centuries are kept there, but they don't really fit the definition of a codex. <sighs> the facility reports having no kayaks made completely of baleen, and it says that extinct flowers are kept in the herbarium at the National Museum of Natural History. He did, however, get it right in saying the MSC has meteorites, a collection of elephant skulls brought back from African safari by Teddy Roosevelt and Sitting, Bill, Sitting Bull's pictographic diary. I mean, I love these people who are not afraid to <laughs> split hairs good. on the internet. Because <laughs> those are I my mean, people. Even, so, so later on, he talks about the Smithsonian Castle itself, like the main museum facade. Mm -hmm. And so the, the website here, uh, as the Dan Brown fact, the Smithsonian Castle located on the National Mall is a blend of Gothic and late Romanesque architecture, basically a quintessential Norman castle like those found in England at about the 12th century. Smithsonian says partly fiction. Though influenced by a Gothic, Romanesque, and Norman styles, the building is a 19th century hybrid, a romanticized Victorian-era mix that was meant to be a new national style of architecture, according to Richard Stam, curator of the castle collection. <laughs> Got him! <laughs> Got him. Dan Brown doesn't care. <laughs> he didn't read that. No. Doesn't give a shit. Um, and so the the like security guard at the Smithsonian Support Center, mm -hmm. who of course is watching the football game or listening to the football game, uh, is like, "What are you doing back there in your secret lab in a secret museum?" And uh, she's like, "I can't tell you." <laughs> Cool and shit, dude. Goes though. on to her work. Yeah. yeah. All right. And I guess we got time for one more chapter because next chapter. Yeah, short. let's go for it. So he's chilling. Okay. Robert Langdon is in the National Statuary Hall, and there's, you know, just people like, just tourists like milling about. It's not. It's not an event or anything. He's not about to give a talk. So he prepared this speech for nothing, which is rude and inconsiderate of his time. Um, well, it was a it's 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 a lecture he's already given in the past. He was just re-upping it. Well, he was re-upping it. That's still his time. He's a professional. Yeah, 
And you'd think if you're a professional, you might like, I don't know, maybe Google to make sure you have the right time and address of the place you're going just in case. And then you find out there is no Smithsonian lecture tonight. (laughs) Well, that's, that's all true. Okay. So, you know, he got, he got the call at 6am. It's uh, 7pm now. He's had 13 hours to check this out. How's your timeline going? Oh, uh, let's see. So right now, chapter eight through nine are just after seven o'clock. Okay. So um, he goes and finds a docent. He says, hey, uh, where's the lecture for the event tonight? Uh, I must be in the wrong place. And they're like, there is no event. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, but you seem confused, sir. And um, he calls Anthony, Peter Solomon's office. Um. Oh, this is this is my favorite part of this section, Anthony. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm glad you're still there. This is Robert Langdon. There seems to be some confusion about the lecture. I'm standing in the statuary hall, but there's nobody here. Has the lecture been moved to a different room? Uh, I don't believe so, sir. Let me check. His assistant paused a moment. Did you confirm with Mr. Solomon directly? Langdon was confused. No, I confirmed with you, Anthony, this morning. Yes, I recall that. There was silence on the line. That was a bit careless of you, don't you think, Professor? Yes! So good! good. (laughs) Oh, I definitely fucked up the recording there, but... (laughs) It's okay. Oh, it's so good, because he's just just dunking on Robert Langdon. Um, Consider this, the man said. You received a fax asking... Oh, Oh, go ahead. Wait, it's actually, consider this. You received a fax asking you to call a number, which you did. (laughs) You spoke to a total stranger who said he was Peter Solomon's assistant. Then you willingly boarded a private plane to Washington and climbed into a waiting car. Is that right? And so, uh, what is this? It's, it's going to become clear why I did that. Uh, l- read two paragraphs down, oh, Lena. I see. <laughs> um, <laughs> Peter Langdon felt a chill race through his body. Who's the, who the hell is this? Where is Peter? I'm afraid Peter Solomon has no idea you're in Washington today. The man's slurred accent disappeared, and his voice voice morphed into a deeper, mellifluous whisper. You can't have a deep whisper. (laughs) You can't have a mellifluous Uh, whisper either. It's true. (laughs) You are here, Mr. Langdon, because I want you here. Have you seen Prison Break? I've been meaning to for a long time, and I have not. First of all, I think you're going to love it. the Um, the, The two main characters are featured often in the flash tv show and in the dc legends of tomorrow tv show is that true yeah the 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 like uh smaller one i guess <laughs> michael Schofield. he plays he yep he plays uh captain cold leonard snart, <laughs> snart. and then the big guy mm-hmm, the big guy uh uh-huh. i forget his i forget his character's name but uh he plays a, he's like a pyromaniac guy. He's got a fire oh, gun good. to play off of other guys' Hell cold gun. Yeah. And Are they in, brothers? in Legends of Tomorrow, uh, they act like brothers, but I don't think they're actually like biologically okay. brothers. But uh, the big, the big guy um, in Legends of Tomorrow, eventually he becomes a uh, quietly successful uh erotic fantasy novelist oh, in addition to good. being a superhero <laughs> um it's good stuff i haven't been binge watching riverdale oh what a good show i haven't watched the newest okay. season 
Or it's like second half. I'm partway through season two, so I don't know. But okay, you didn't tell Getting me that jingle jangle. You didn't tell me that this was the best show on TV. <laughs> I have said it on Twitter a million times. <laughs> it's so good. Everyone's fucking all the time. <laughs> and Archie turns into a fascist in three episodes. <laughs> he sure does. The red circle. It fucking rules. Hiram is so hot for no reason. <laughs> he is a good looking gentleman. It must be said. Uh, a lot of good looking people on that TV show. Yeah, except for uh, Luke Perry. Compared to the other hot dads, uh, really not holding up. Rest in rest peace. In peace. <laughs> How dare you desecrate the fort? The he is just not died. as hot like, as the other dads. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to say it right now. What am I supposed to say it before he died? Damn, they let the man rest. Let the man rest for a year. I don't know when he died. I just found out recently that he was dead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sad. He won't even get to be in the newest reboot of Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, you hate to see it. You really do. All right. R.I.P. Dylan. R.I.P. I think Shanda's going to be back, though. That's so good. Got that to look forward to. Molly Ringwald looks great in uh, Riverdale. Good for her. She does. I love Molly Ringwald. She's my favorite person. I prefer uh, Gandhi, but... Uh, Why would no. you prefer Gandhi? You, if, <laughs> Molly Ringwald didn't sexually abuse anyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> damn it. Um, that you know of. Fair. Uh, <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, I mean, not allegedly, but um, anyways. Uh, angels and demons or positive spirits and negative spirits, I guess. Um, if we're going Marion Williamson on this. Listen, as my husband Malach said, angels and demons are one and the same. So where, where others might see Malach as a demon, I, for one, see him as an angel. Um <laughs> a beautiful, perfect angel of immaculate physical form um, and great taste in very severe classical music. Um, demons. Uh, let's see. We only saw like three people. I would say um, Officer Nunez for just ragging on his wife for no fucking reason. <laughs> just to a stranger. He's just talking shit about his wife to strangers. Imagine being his I mean, wife. I don't think we actually said the. I don't think we actually said what he says about. Oh, his wife. he says. Um, let me. Um, let me find. It. So, they're talking about. They're talking about tattoos as youthful mistakes mm-hmm. when they hurt or not, and so he's like, "Oh yeah, you know the mistakes we made." Oh no, Nunez doesn't say this. The bald man oh, says yeah. this. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. So Nunez says the mistakes we make in our youth, and then the bald man who's Moloch in disguise says, "I made a big mistake in my youth too." Now I wake up with her every morning. <laughs> they both laughed as the man headed off. Well, he shouldn't have laughed at that. No, it's fine. So I'm not going to go back and say Malach was wrong because Malach doesn't have a wife. He only has his perfect well, playing a part. physical form. Yeah, I think for me, the positive spirit, the angel can only be Malach. Uh, it's going to be hard for him to do almost anything in this book that's going to make me like him less, I think. <laughs> Uh, I've read ahead a bit here and I think that's going to remain true for me for a while. <laughs> uh, demon, negative spirit, bad energy, bad vibes, bad stuff, no go. Um, uh, fuck it. Oh, Jared Kushner. Oh yeah. That kid, that, the Harvard freshman guy. <laughs> um, and also just the real life Jared. Kushner. Yeah. Fuck you, Jared Kushner. Uh, 
Uh, grades, grades for this subsection. Um, uh, sorry, gang. Due to time constraints, this is going to be uh, more than or fewer than twenty chapters per episode. Looks like <laughs> at least for the first one. Um, I would say for enjoyability, I'd give it a B plus. I thought it was fun. I had a good time. It moves pretty quickly. We get into the meat of it pretty soon. Um, we don't really get to like the 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 big call to action, the literal call to action yet, but. Um, where we are right now is pretty exciting. I mean, he's flown, things are mysterious. There's a, there's a science scientist doing magic in a thing. There's an incredible villain, just the best villain he's written so far. Um, we're with it. You know, we got, we got into a Harvard flashback so quickly and like, I'm, I can't put it down. Like this is the Dan Brown that I, that the people have come to love, I think. The Harvard flashback for me is why this section is getting a C. Mm. If we'd done the full 20 chapter section, it would be probably higher, but, uh, you know, the vicissitudes of life and whatnot. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going, I'm going C for this section in terms of enjoyability. I'm going, uh, probably an A minus in terms of Dan Browning. All right. Yeah. I'll give it an, I'll give it an A minus for this, these nine chapters or eight chapters rather. Um, I think, Next time, I will give it an A or an A plus even, because um, I've read, read a little bit ahead too, and I think we're about to get into some really hot shit. I'm really excited. Yeah. Uh, hunt us down on social media like Malach hunts down his opponents, except don't kill us, just follow us. Well, we don't know if anyone's... No one's dead, okay? So... <laughs> That's true. A, don't That's unfairly true. malign uh, Malach, okay? Um <laughs> Uh, hunt us down on Twitter uh, at Dan Brown Code Pod. You can also follow me at Lena Jamili. That's L I N A J E M I L I. You can also follow me on Instagram. I broke 4,000 followers yesterday. Um, that's at Lena, L I N A dot J E M, Lena Gem. I, that's my pop star name because my last name is hard for white people to say. Forrest? Uh, Jamili. <laughs> uh, Got it. And uh, on Twitter, I am at Wishbone Ulysses, but I decided last night to take a little break from Twitter and return back to Mastodon, where uh, it turns out the previous instances I was using, bofa.lol and kinzik.me, are both dead Aww. now. So I'm back to the OG, uh, Wishbone Ulysses at mastodon.social. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, f figure it out. Come join us here. It's fun. We have a good time. <laughs> I might. I might. I'm not doing much of anything these days. So, um, and uh, please rate and review our podcast on whatever thing that you use to listen to it. It really does mean a lot to us, and it helps new people find our podcast. Um, and thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and a great summer. So. Thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna do the content warning real quick. Um. <laughs> <laughs>